Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, the book of Colossians, and and begin a walking through this this book. And we've been we went back and forth a number of times with Mark and about how to you know what to address. Basically, Mark and I uh, enjoy tag teaming in this class and kind of sharing some of the teaching load and uh, coming at it from two different angles, different perspectives. And we're trying to think about what to go through next, having finished our last study uh, for the past, I think, good four months. We started last September, uh, Instruments in the Hands of the Redeemer, and now going through, taking a different step and going through the book of, of, of Colossians. Four small chapters. The desire is not to do a, you know, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on doing all the geographical locations and, the, you know, who, the, the author, discussion on the author. I'm all those, all those I'm not going to say technical aspects of the, of the text, which are interesting if you want to dig into it, obviously. But in these four chapters, go, go through and understand the context, understand, of course, why he's writing this letter. And then, really, the desire in family life class, we mentioned this last week, is to come at a point where we can um, apply these truths to our families, how we're raising our, our families, how we're raising our, our children. And he'll, he'll, he'll speak to this in this text. And I want to, to be able to bring these things out. And, of course... The desire is to every week, as I send out emails, is to send out a couple of questions, just to begin thinking about what we'll be reading in the uh, in the following class. You know, Colossians is, is like every part of Scripture, but these small epistles really are, are jam packed with truths. With in this case, a beautiful picture of Christ that He's going to present here. He's going to be He's going to begin by by uplifting Christ in this book. He's going to. The basic context of the text is what is uh, you see in verse four. We're going to read maybe the first four, um, first eight verses rather, and then come back and give us a little bit of context and and set this this epistle out there for us. So let's go ahead and read the first eight verses. Um, Nathan, if you take the first four verses and Fred the following four for the first eight verses of this chapter one, please. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it is also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. So briefly, the context is he references Epaphras here in verse in verse 7. He'll reference him again in chapter 4. Basically, Epaphras came to Paul with concerns he had for the church. And he comes and asking him for advice on how to deal with these issues. And every time you see through this letter, Paul addressing specific uh, answer, specific questions in the church, he's, he's answering a concern that Epaphras brought to him. How do I handle this? This is going on. There's, and how do I deal with it? How do I speak to it? And so he's coming to Paul. It's not, we're not sure Paul actually went to, to Colossae. 
that you don't know, maybe they were, it wasn't very far from Laodicea. Maybe he was the impact of the church of Ephesus, which is the testimony was they spread their testimony through Asia Minor. So we don't know exactly the specifics, but he hadn't been here. He hadn't seen these believers. He makes reference to that. And he's here during his, uh, as you know, just again, just context a little bit. Paul was in prison twice. This is for his first imprisonment in Rome. And during his first imprisonment, he wrote Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and then Philemon. Many times when you see a study book on Colossians, you'll see it tied to, you'll see Colossians and Philemon because of the parallel between the, these two texts. So at his first imprisonment time, later on, he'll be, he'll be, he was in house arrest, basically, type of imprisonment for two years. So during that time, he had, he had guests, visitors come, as in, Epaphras could come and visit him during this time, and he did much writing during that time as well. We know later he's in prison a second time. His last uh, writings were Second Timothy right before his death when he's in prison a second time and then uh, on to be martyred for the gospel. So that's the context here. The focus is not on him being in prison. He doesn't make reference to this. His, his, his focus here is purely on responding to the need that Epaphras is bringing to him. How do I respond to this and how do I address these, these issues? Is written to address the, this church specifically, important questions concerning faith, God, philosophy, um, and uh, we just see that the church here is being threatened. Now, when we say the church is being threatened with, with false teaching, we'll see in chapter 2, and I'm not going to, to bounce around too much a little bit, but here just kind of setting the stage. In, in chapter 2, he talks about... Um, Encouraging their hearts, chapter 2, verse verse 2. Encouraging their hearts, uh, knit together in love, attain, says that they um, understand to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So he talks about, in verse 4, should not be deceived with persuasive words. So he talks about those who come in. He talks about uh, being rooted and build up, verse 7, in, in faith. So he's going to address those who... Verse eight: Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. So he's coming. He's going to. He's going to talk about those who are coming in there, trying to tear up the church, threatening the church, harm the church. And we, this is why one thing I want to say: that when we talk about false teaching, for us, false teaching is okay. Let, let's let's establish wrong doctrine and let's face it with right doctrine. Here's wrong teaching and here's right teaching. Well, it's it's when we're talking about uh, him addressing false teaching, we're talking about also the church facing. A false response, false emotions. He talks about uh, not being a prey to, to discouragement. So he's he's addressing how they walk as well, walking in truth. This is a, in chapter three. You're going to have basically the layout is going to be chapter one. He's going to uplift and focus on Christ. Chapter two, he's going to lay out the problems that are in the church. Then chapter three, chapter three, then he's going to go to here's what you need to be putting off, putting off, and here's what you need to be putting on. And then he ends with exhortations and greetings. Uh, salutations in, in chapter in chapter four. So false teachings are going to come in 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 many forms for this church, and I just want to 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 bring out the reason why I focus on the term walk is um, four times in this in this epistle he refers to them and, and their walk in Christ, how to walk in a manner. And this chapter my favorite verse is probably chapter one, verse ten. He says, Walk in, in a manner worthy of the Lord, 
fully pleasing to him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Here is his exhortation to them in chapter 1. He repeats it again in chapter 2. Therefore, we receive Christ, so walk in him. And in chapter 3, when he's talking about what you should be putting off and what you should be putting on, he's talking about putting off, he says, here's the way you used to walk. You shouldn't be walking in these ways anymore. And then exhortation in chapter 4, again, walk in wisdom uh, towards those who are who are outside. So how do you go about, here you, here you have a man coming about and, and, and sharing all these, these concerns he has for the church, all of these threats to the church, and he has a passion for the church. He has a heart for the for the body of Christ. So where does where does Paul begin? And I I use a small illustration here. How do you fight false teaching and false thinking? I thought about this example that sometimes we we often use. Right? Is you don't you don't you first and foremost fight false teaching by doing what? Not by going away and tearing that false teaching apart, but first exalting truth. So the first chapter is going to be purely exalting truth. Now, I could ask you which is the real $20 bill, which one is the fake one. But my problem is I'm not really sure myself. So, <laughs> well, actually one of the reasons is because they gave, the, there's an example here of a ruin of false, and they explain how to, how to identify. And of course... And you've heard these illustrations used before, but the way you're, you're trained to identify the real $20 bill is not by studying a bunch of counterfeits. Why? <laughs> because they all change. There's always a different counterfeit. There's always a different shade of that counterfeit. And as a matter of fact, what's always interesting in, in, in scriptures, you go through, through Colossians, and what, what, they're, what they're addressing, whether it be agnosticism, whether it be all these other issues they're addressing, you could take them into our, our society and they take different forms. They morph into different issues, but they're dealing with the same struggles we're going to deal with. It's always amazing talking about scripture that was written so long ago, and yet here we are, we read it. It's like, wow, these things threaten the church today as well. They threaten our families. He's going to actually, matter of fact, at the end of chapter 3, talk about, you know, wives. He, he repeats what he saw back in Ephesians. Wives loving, uh, submitting to your husbands, lo- husbands loving your wives, children, obey your parents. Because all this, all this truth has to do about how we walk, how we live our lives, and how... These false teachings come and threaten threaten that. So one thing about these about these twenty dollar bills, the, the one identifying factor is supposed to be how you identify the number twenty. In other words, when you take number twenty, the the number, and you tilt it. And, Judy, you're my banker. You should be telling me all this. You should be spotting the real bill, right? Oh, you get the magic marker. Yeah. So if you tilt the if you tilt the number in the light, it should go from from copper to green. As opposed to the fake one who doesn't change shades of color. So there's there's ways of, of identifying it. But all that to say is that he, you would think when someone comes to you with, with sharing their burdens, sharing their concerns, sharing their problems, Paul begins to think, well, if all these, all these things are urgent, the first thing he does is to just reaffirm who they are in Christ. And reaffirm the person of Christ, reestablishing the supremacy of Christ, reestablishing the omniscience of. He goes back and reestablish because that's that's going to be the foundational truth that they need to lean on and understand and rely on to answer whatever concerns, whatever threats might be uh, coming upon the church. So the first one we see is simply in his greeting, in his greeting to the church. How does it? How does he identify himself in a? 
in, in verse 1 and, and 2, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. He identifies himself as, as, as an apostle of Christ. Why, why is this significant or how is this significant? He does this almost systematically in all his writings, but what is he, what's important for him to establish right off the bat when he speaks? Taught by Christ, so the source of his truth is from him. What does that title describe? His authority. His authority. So kind of, he's going to systematically when he introduces himself, he's not doing it, of course, in a position of trying to to exert some kind of power over them. But he's trying to say, uh, he's trying to establish the authority he has to say what he says, and that's going to be important. And though you and I are not apostles, whenever we come and, and and try to give a response to people who are faced with, with, with difficulty or faced with trials or faced with, with challenges, our, the authority we want to speak from is not, well, let me tell you what I experienced. Let me tell you how I felt. Well, let me tell you how that makes me. Well, yeah, that, that happened to me. And every time when, we, he, he, when Paul first and foremost anchors his authority in his apostleship by God's desire, God's will, not his own. Many times whenever, whenever, someone, whenever someone goes through or, or facing something of this nature, uh, the first response is going to be, well, if you haven't experienced it and if you haven't lived it, then you have nothing to speak. You can't speak truth into my life. If you haven't lost a child, then you can't speak to me about what it means to lose a child. If you have, well, the, the reality is our authority has to, we have to keep refocusing what? Our authority comes from the Word of God, and we need to focus on the truth of the Word of God and reestablish that in their lives before we're able to unravel or uh, take apart anything else. He speaks as one with, with authority. He presents himself as such. And our authority as well comes from, of course, comes from the Word of God. Two things he identifies in uh, verse 2 as well. The, people who, the two people he's addressing uh, this letter to, this epistle to, is first, he says, to the saints, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. What, what noteworthy distinction is he making here? And this is going to actually uh, reflect in what he's going to say in the, in the verses that follow. What's the, what's the two... What noticeable or distinction is he making in verse two? He calls them saints and so that's recognizing their spiritual state before God as saints, holy ones. So first he identifies their position as saints, being sanctified, being set apart. He does this he does this as well systematically, even with a church like Corinth. When Corinth was struggling with so many uh, sin issues within the church, he still, right off the bat, introduces them and identifies them as saints, set aside as a reminder. You're you've been set aside for something other than what you're dealing with here. You're and you've been set aside, and so yes, they're saints. But the second part, he is, he, he makes a distinction too that they're your saints and what and your faithful brethren. He identifies their, their, their faithfulness, and he acknowledges and admonishes them for, for their, their, their faithfulness. That's, 
I trust that even for, for my own testimony that it's not, I'm not satisfied with simply being called a saint. But my desire is to be called a faithful saint. He makes a distinction here between someone who's a saint and someone who's a faithful brethren. Now, I like to believe those two are synonymous. I like to believe that someone who's a saint is a faithful brethren. But he makes this distinction here. And then he wishes, what does he wish upon the believers? In verse 2 as well, second part of verse 2, two things he's going to wish upon the believers. First, he says grace and peace. Grace to you and peace from from uh, God the Father. Grace Referring to uh, God's salvation, God's saving disposition uh, and uh, towards them, regards to them, and peace. Uh, in one commentary I read, I thought was 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 referring to says that peace is the equivalent of shalom in the Old Testament. We kind of like that word shalom. Again, uh, it kind of just flows off your tongue. Where shalom just gives the sense of peace in the Old Testament, but this is the same kind of greeting here. Uh, peace is, as we know, is more than, it's not absent from conflict. He's, he, he's uh, given them, uh, he, he says, grace and peace. Peace is not absence of, of conflict or absence of difficulty, but peace is the sense of wholeness and completeness that is found in Christ. He says this in verse 20, at, at further on in this chapter. Look what he says in verse 20. Um, Uh, verse 20 says, Heaven, For it is pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. This peace is, is more of being complete. It's this fullness. Isn't it amazing that it's something unique to believers to experience completeness, to experience fullness in the midst of of trials in the midst of, of challenges. So he goes on then in verses 3 through verse 6 near the end of this chapter. Let me see if I get. So, how is their faithfulness explained? In the following verses, verses 3 through 6, he's going to describe, we talked about them as being faithful brethren. Then verse 3 begins by saying, he gives thanks to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And so he gives different aspects, different traits of these believers that identify them as faithful brethren. What is the first one that he brings out? I guess I shouldn't have all my notes up here so you could read them. Verse verse 4, first thing he says, it says, We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. The first thing he identifies as them when he talks about them as being uh, faithful, like we saw described in verse, <clears throat> verse 2, the first identifying trait of a faithful believer is someone who has, he, he, he recognizes, he says, We've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. The second thing he introduces, and he describes in verse uh, 4 as well, we heard of your love for the saints. So the first two things he identifies in this verse, he says, Here's, here are signs of a faithful believer. 
If I were to, if if Paul were to come and and we were to describe some of the, you know, I, w- I wish you if if you were to come here and observe us, I, I wish you would be able to say, hey, here's here's the, your faithful brethren. What does it mean to be a faithful brethren? Well, the first thing is you heard of their faith in Christ. What does that mean to you when he says in that one little phrase? What does it mean your faith in Christ? What does that what does that encompass? How you go about your daily life, how you approach things, perspective. Perspective. How you face in life. What's the definition of faith? Hebrews 11, faith is the evidence of things what? Not seen. So how are you living your life? Trusting. Trusting in Christ. And trusting yourself to him. It's a life. It's a life marked by evidence that you have a, a working, a, a relationship, a faithful relationship with Jesus Christ. So it comes out in the lifestyle you lead too. So it's not just a, a profession. It's a, something that makes a visible. I'm borrowing your note up there on that screen. Visible testimony. <laughs> it's visible to others. So they're clear. Testimony, their known testimony, and their visible testimony. To be marked as people of faith is, is to be marked as someone that has a, a known testimony and a visible testimony. And walking by faith and having faith in Christ is living your life evidenced by things that you don't see. This, the, you know, the term Christian is a very broad term today. We during the open house because um, because Holy Cross school closed we had a number of Catholics to our school on Friday one of them got into an argument with one of the Bible teachers about how many books should be in the Bible <laughs> and another one was asking they saw our requirements being what does it mean to be a discipleship school and here's our expectations that you're part of a Bible believing church and who so and so and she goes what if so she said, what if we, we're not well, I guess then this is not <laughs> where you need to be. But aren't we all Christians? And from a historical perspective, I understand what she's saying because they 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 don't know that distinction. And the, and those labels labels don't mean anything. Labels, this notion of well, I understand the confusion on their end because they're thinking, well, we're Christian, and you're Christian, you're a Christian school. We came from a Christian school. Where's the problem? And there's such a great divide, of course, between between those two those two terms that are being used. To for him to identify them as faithful brethren, the first thing is that they he heard of their faith. He heard of their faith because it was visible, because it was known, because it had spread. That's that's more than just he. I read your statement of faith. I heard you stand for. I heard you agreed on these bylaws. It's not heard of your faith because he heard of how they lived out their faith. And Epaphras has come back with, with a testimony as who this church was and who the believers were. And so he, Epaphras didn't come back complaining because Paul has a good view of the church. He's there to help them. He's there to love them. So he didn't come back. You know, Epaphras didn't go there saying, man, these people are just, they're weak. They're inconsistent. They're, he came back and said, man, I've heard of your faith. 
And the second thing he describes here is I uh, in Christ, and I heard of what? I heard of your love for all the saints. I heard of your love for all the saints. You know, this is, I put down here that echoes John thirteen thirty five. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. I put down it as a distinct mark of a believer. There are many other faithful traits of a believer, but this particular one lends itself to wise. I mean, there are, there are many traits of a believer. I ask you here, you know, what are the ten traits of a believer? Humble. You, you list a whole, a, whole, a whole host of traits. This one trait lends itself to one the, the ability to love. The fact that you hear that he loved one another lends itself to what specifically? Well, he ties it specifically to this. He ties it to this. By this, others will know that you're my, you're my disciples. In other words, the, the love that we exert one for another is, is the sign that w- to others outside the church evidence that we belong to him. Because I, I don't know if it's because of something so unnatural about a bunch of people who have nothing in common but Christ to love each other because of Christ. I mean, if, if, if you and I didn't have Christ in common, what would we have in common? Would they ever know Glenn? I'm not going to give you a hard time about your testimony last week. I almost, <laughs> I promised I wouldn't, so I won't. I almost did by email, though. I said, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> Take on him a little bit from last week. Thanks, appreciate that testimony you gave. But, it, you know how it's, it's even more evidence when you're in a, in a, in a secular culture who, who doesn't, here we're in Lynchburg, there's, there's a church not even on every corner, every corner and one in between every corner. I mean, we're, they're, they're everywhere. I get it. But it is amazing. In a, like when, when we're on the field and you're, then we're the only church that unbelievers know, someone who calls themselves an evangelical church, and they see how in the midst of, of adversity you support each other, you love each other. And when they come to a fellowship group and they see people who love each other, when they come, it's so foreign to them. Because the only place they gather is around common interest. So there's a ping pong club, there's a soccer club, there's a uh, drinking club. There's a <laughs> you're centered around your points, your areas of interest. But to be gathered around for the sole reason because you love Christ and know Christ, and then you love each other as a body is is so. I can't tell you how many times I've seen unbelievers be moved towards the gospel by simply observing believers love each other. It's not as obvious in our context simply because of the um, how it's so common to see believers and we don't always see that, that contrast. But he describes them in this way. And then, 3 and 4, the third evidence he brings out in verse 5, observation, and he goes, of your love for all the saints, verse 5, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. We heard of how they had heard and received the truth of the gospel. And he describes it here. He says it produces hope. If you, if you dig into a little bit, and I, I'm not going to say if you have the right definition, the right Greek term, all that kind of stuff. But if you read some of the commentaries about the use of the word hope and, and how we perceive that term... I found it interesting in, in the English understanding of the word, hope is something that we aspire to. 
if I if I were to ask uh, you know kids, hey, do you guys are you guys going to win Friday? Yeah, we hope we hope we're going to win. Doesn't mean we have any confidence we're going to win. It means that cross our fingers if all goes well, and maybe we'll we'll win something. So our our notion of hope is usually means we aspire to to something. We in hopes that it comes true. We trust that it comes true, or we're counting on something to happen. Uh, I hope it's going to happen. So we, we use that term in a different way than what he intended to be used here. Someone wrote that this term here he says the original word hope expresses confidence some have even claimed that the word is stronger than the word knowing so if i'm going to say i know this to be true then that's pretty confident they're saying that the use of the word hope here is is stronger confidence than simply saying i know something but i have confidence in this so when he says that the, the hope which is laid up in heaven, which they've heard and they've received through the gospel, it's not just as they aspire to this. It's not just that they're hoping this unfolds correctly. It's not that we're just hoping that all things work together for good. We're not, it's that they have the confidence that this is true and they live their lives then accordingly. It's, it's such a different understanding of hope than what we would normally uh, take in for ourselves. Because for us, hope usually means, man, I, I just, I hope this comes about. You know, I hope this works out okay. And the last part I just want to bring out in verse 6. He says, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth what? Fruit. It is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. We heard of how the gospel is producing fruit through you. I wrote down here, the fruit comes from the fact that they had heard the truth, received the truth of the gospel, and of course lived out that truth, and they bear fruit accordingly. Um, this fruit is evidenced by a changed life, a different walk. We'll see this uh, evidence a little bit later as he exhorts him in chapter 3, and not based on their own efforts, but clearly based on on Christ. So as he walks through, introduces himself, he's doing what? Chapter 1, he he encourages them based on what he's heard from them. Here is the evidences of, you know, that you know Christ, that you have your hope in Christ, your confidence in him, that you're faithful brethren because of the fruit that you produce, how you respond to the gospel. Well, I guess I shouldn't use my slider button, should I? How they heard of their faith in Christ, how they lived out their faith, how they the love for the saints, and and in doing so, then he's going to to exalt the person of Christ. And what I would say is, you know, we Mark has 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 often addressed this in counseling. We talked about this a lot, as a matter of fact, and we talked about the, the book in the hands uh, of a redeemer is looking beyond circumstances. If if Paul is going to not, he's not going to come in there and first break apart. Here's your wrong thinking. Here's what you're doing right. Here's what you're doing wrong. Here's how you respond to this. He's first going to exalt the person of Christ. In every situation that I'm faced with, in every conflict that I have, in every struggle that I have, in every false teaching, every false emotion, every doubt, every discouragement, everything I have, the first place to go to reestablish the right way of responding is the right way of thinking about Christ. And he's going to to do that in this in the beginning of verse nine 
talking about the uh, supremacy of Christ and how we're reconciled with Christ and how we serve him sacrificially. But he first lays the foundation of Christ. I tell you what, I don't know, about, I, I don't know how you respond to, to adversity. I've, I've told people many times that um, there are many things we can't explain. Many, many theologians try to explain everything they can about God. They try to explain God's sovereignty and God desired that to happen and here's why it happened. And he, has, and he tries to, uh, to, to address things in a way where we try to explain God away. But ultimately, it's about come back to the, to the heart of things, this trust in Christ, knowing Christ, understanding who he is, and trusting who he is. So he's going to first take the first chapter to, to just recast the picture of who Christ is and who we are in relation to him before he addresses uh, some of the false teachings and the philosophies that they're facing with and then tell them how in a practical way in chapter 3, here's what we do. Here's what you need to put off. Don't walk in these ways anymore. Here's what you need to put on and, and walk in a way that is uh, pleasing unto the Lord. So verse, verse 10 is really... As he, again, every chapter addresses the question of walking in truth. In the, in the verse 10 of chapter, I'm going to leave I'll just reread that one and finish with that this morning. He said that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being faithful and fruitful, rather, in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. So he's going he's gonna to encourage them to walk in a manner that is worthy and pleasing to God. And that's lifting up Christ and then from there addressing uh, the trials and le- addressing the false teachings and addressing everything else that they have concerns with in uh, this, this small church. So we're going to walk through this. It, it's, it's only four chapters, so it won't take, it won't take very long. But uh, trusting... Yes? If I could just talk about real quick, I mean, just taking a couple seconds here to talk about identity and hope from a practical theology perspective. I'm just thinking how important it is that <clears throat> since we're humans, most of us in this room, we always default by identifying ourselves with our problem and our pain. And so you'll hear people say, well, I'm, I'm an alcoholic or I'm ADD, or I'm bipolar. They, they identify with their labels, their pain, their trials, rather than identifying with Christ. And so the reason this is evolved is because that's, that's how we're built. We're built around our pain. But we have to be intentional about identifying with Christ, which that gives us the hope. And the hope is that the truth and that reality gets us through our pain, gets us through our trials and tribulations. So I think it's more of an intentional identifying with Christ. It's not automatic just because you believe it. So I think that it's important for us to understand that we will always identify with our pain. And we call it problem-centered counseling because people are identified with their pain and problems rather than identifying with Christ. So I think it's, it's, yeah. it's important to, to understand that identity. Why don't you close the word of prayer for us, Mark? Sure. Thank you, Father, for your word. And um, we're um, people that fall towards our pain and problems. And so just being intentional about our faith, intentional about our journey, even our thought life, brings us into the reality of the truth of your word. So thank you for that. 
Thank you that uh, you're still working on all these other things. We're going to complete that which began. Thank you for uh, the fruit of investing that in our hearts. As the psalmist said in 119, we pray that, um, that this reality in our life will transform us in the likeness of Christ. All for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.